Season 4 Beyond the Plate is presented by Martin's Famous Potato Rolls. Martin's was founded in the heart of Pennsylvania Dutch country in 1955, and they are the number one branded hamburger bun in America. And as I like to say, they can make almost any burger taste better. I usually like to focus on different ways that I use Martin's, and I'm kicking this season off with the Big Marty. Martin's Big Marty's rolls are sesame seed rolls. They're large white rolls. People assume that these rolls are a potato bread product because most of Martin's products are, and that's what they're best known for, but they're actually made with white dough and no potato. But just like their other products, they continue to use high quality ingredients in items like this, like all of their products, and they still have great taste and that soft, squishy texture that makes Martin's so amazing. Check out Martin's Big Marty's rolls. They're fantastic. But here's what I love. Martin's mission encompasses more than just baking great bread and buns and rolls. They believe in giving back to the community and beyond their community through volunteering time and donating resources. They support hundreds of charitable organizations such as food banks, after school programs, disaster relief and others that provide sustenance and comfort to people in need close to their baking facility and abroad. Check out their bonus episode from season two and you'll hear a lot more about this pretty amazing to learn more about martins visit their website at potatorolls.com or you can follow them on the social media sphere at potatorolls martins we thank you some people may say you're a perfectionist how would you define perfection well, we always talk about perfection as if, if you ever reach perfection it's not really perfect yeah. uh, so there's another there's another level so you know perfection is a quest perfection is a path Perfection is a journey um, that you never really realize because once you think you've perfected something, you start to look at it a little differently and start to understand there may be, again, you know, modifications or things that you can do that you can make a little better. Hey everyone, I'm Cappy. Welcome back kicking off season four of Beyond the Plate, a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey with food and their passion for giving back. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for joining us. If you are a returning listener, we appreciate you. We have a great episode for you this week. We sat with Chef Thomas Keller. I don't know where to start for this episode. This chef is like the best of the best of the best. It feels silly for me to even do an intro. It's like me doing an interview with Michael Jordan and explaining who Michael Jordan is or doing an interview with Bono and trying to explain who Bono is. It's silly. If you know anything about food, you've heard of Chef Thomas Keller. I got to tell this story. I shaved for this episode. I always have like five o'clock shadow or some scruff on my face. I rarely ever shave. For my mom, if she requests it, the first time I met President Clinton, I shaved. The first time I met Michelle Obama, I shaved. Yeah, I'm fully name dropping, but it's true. I shaved for this episode. I feel like I needed to give this man that respect. He's had more dishes copied and replicated than most chefs. His salmon cornet, 
which is the salmon tartare and a little cone, his oysters and pearls, coffee and donuts, his service style at the French Laundry, his flagship restaurant. It's casual yet elegant, which you've probably seen replicated at so many restaurants. Chef owner of French Laundry in Napa, 25-year anniversary they just celebrated. He has Per Se in New York, among other restaurants, Bouchon, Bouchon Bakery, Ad Hoc and Addendum. La Calenda, the surf club restaurant now in Miami, and the Tack Room in New York City where we sat. He has five cookbooks, more than a million copies in circulation. Talk to most chefs and they have one of Thomas Keller's books. Usually it's the French Laundry Cookbook probably sitting on their shelf in their kitchen. In 2017, he led the team from the United States to the first ever gold medal in the Bocuse d'Or, which is the Olympics of the culinary world. He consulted on films, Spanglish, Ratatouille. Thomas Keller was behind the scenes on that. I hope you loved the first episode of season four as much as I enjoyed the opportunity of sitting and talking with him. Please enjoy this conversation as we go beyond the plate with Chef Thomas Keller. All right, ready to rock. So fair to say you're an icon to many cooks and chefs out there. No, thank you. What three words would you use to describe yourself? I think persistence is is one of those. I, I always talk about being persistent. If you're persistent, you can do anything you want to do. If you give up, if you stop, you'll never reach the goals that you've set for yourself or the goals that you refine for yourself after you reach your initial goals because there's always the next level. Evolution is, is a good word, always evolving. I'm always trying to do better today than I did yesterday and, and trying to inspire my team to feel the same way. And it could be something small, you know, shining your shoes a little better today than yesterday could be one of those things. I, I know a lot of people want to have these kind of monumental changes as they go through their career, especially when we're young. But I think we have to understand that the, the idea of patience in the process uh, is very important. And the idea of incrementally doing a little better than the day before will get you to the place you want to be, uh, again, with, with persistence. So that ever-evolving, that ever-trying to do uh, a better job, look for a better way. And, and, but you have to be careful with that, you know, because sometimes what you're doing today, you know, is, is really, really the best way to do something. And so always trying to find a better way sometimes will lead you down a rabbit hole to maybe making mistakes or poor judgments on things. So, yeah, you know, that's something you have to be careful with. And I, and, I, and I would express that you have people around you who you can trust, who can advise you on some of those things that you're trying to evolve and trying to push and pursue for, for a better place or a better, a better idea. And then, of course, we talk about the mentoring and I think that's something that we want to do. Certainly, you know, as you go through your career in different ages and different, different points in your career, you have opportunities to do different things. And I think in my career now, mentoring becomes an important part. Um, yeah. Leaving something for the, or teaching the next generations, not yeah. just generation, yeah. but next generations. And exemplifying what it is to be a chef and to point out the different choices that they have. Uh, and that, you know, my path or other other paths may not be the path that that's best suited for them but at least to give them an opportunity to look at these different these different options um, and 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 be able to make a choice based on your helping them understand what their future may look like 
So I wanted to share, before we get deeper on some of this stuff, a personal Paul Bocuse story. Mm-hmm. I know you were you were close with him. Yes. Um, I have a connection there because I know you coached the U.S. team for Bocuse to Or, which is the culinary you know, Olympics, if you will. Right. Um, but I know he called you to to be the president of the foundation, yep. and and you basically said, "We chef," because that's what you say to Paulo Cus. Well, that's what you say to, yeah. to <laughs> you know, one thing about chefs is we're never taught to say no. Right? Yeah, <laughs> we're never allowed to say no. Yeah. So I I worked at a restaurant in Chicago called Naha, Chef Gary Nahabedian, and I was working in the pastry department just after I graduated CIA. I did work in the kitchen yeah, for a little bit. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and Paul Bo- Chef Bocuse came in and he walked in the kitchen unannounced and came straight to my station. And I was a little nervous, as you can imagine. And he said, who made the pot de creme? And I, I was like, oh, no, is there eggshell in there? Is there something, you know? And I said, I did. And he looked at me and he said, it was perfect. Yeah, yeah. And I always remember that. That's good. It's funny how when, and that's happened to me on different occasions with different people, and your first reaction is that you've done something wrong, Yeah. right? And really, you know, most of the time when someone comes back and asks you that question, I've learned that it's always going to be a compliment that follows that who made that because they really want to know and be able to embrace you and say, yeah, you did a really good job with that. That's so nice. congratulations. Thank you, thank you. All right, so I want to talk just for a few minutes about growing up, like you as okay. little little. Little Thomas Keller, yeah. before you were Chef Thomas Keller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you tell us about like 10-year-old Thomas Keller? Well, mischievous would be, would be a, a, a good word. I was um, raised by a single parent, my mother. Uh, my parents were divorced when I was four. I was raised by my mother and, and, and basically my three to two older brothers, depending on the time. I think by the time I was 10, I think my oldest brother Jimmy had gone off to uh, his own place and I had uh, Michael and, and, and Bobby who were my older brothers. But I, you know, you, the, you look up to them, they're protectors, but they're also in many ways your, your nemesis in, hmm. in, in, in some ways because they're always there to either help you or to make you do something that they don't want to do. Right. So in other words, you know, as a youngster, as the youngest of the five boys, my brother Joseph and I was next older than me. You know, we, we were always, we had our chores that we had to do every day. And my older brothers didn't like to do chores, so they made us do their chores. And so that was that kind of thing where, okay, if you didn't do it right, then they would get in trouble and then you would get in trouble because they got in trouble because you didn't do what they told you <laughs> to do correctly. But then on the other hand, they were, they were protectors. You know, if you ever had any problems or anything that you needed to get done, they were there to help and, uh, and protect you in ways. So it was a childhood fraught with a lot of challenges, yeah. you know, as, as a younger boy with only a single parent. Um, it was one where we were always, you know, doing something, which was really great. I mean, we were always outside running around. Baseball was a big part of my life as, as, as a youngster. I found a place in a team and I really started to learn about, you know, that comfort about being around people who had the same type of goals you did, but were doing part of a team uh, as a player, part, uh, another part of that team. And it was great to see that, you know, I played first base, but you saw the second baseman, how, how important that was in every other position, but you were part of that team. So I really started learn uh, about teamwork but I realized also at a young age that I wasn't really going to be good enough for a baseball player to ever do anything with it. Were you lefty? Uh, no but I was interesting I was I was right-handed first baseman yeah. which was very was very unusual I was very tall so they because of my reach I could I could really get the ball and uh, so um, it was a lot of fun in, in, the, in those times. Did mom cook when you were growing up? Was there family dinners? Not really. Um, I, I didn't. I don't have those wonderful childhood memories of sitting around on my my mother's knees stirring a pot of ragu or you know braising short ribs. Yeah. 
she would cook very seldomly, typically on, on holidays, Christmas, Thanksgiving, things like that. So I was left to um, kind of fend for myself with my older brothers making dinner for us. And typically it was, you know, something easy, macaroni and cheese, hot dogs, you know, Swanson's TV dinners were a big part of yeah. our life back then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hamburger helper, those kinds of things. <laughs> so mom worked in the industry, kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, I read as part of um, when I was reading about, we're sitting here at Tack Room right now, you're gorgeous, delicious new spot in Hudson Yards. And I read, you said, this project is deeply personal to me. You have vivid memories watching your mom manage International Club atop the Holiday Inn in Laurel, Maryland, and the impact of that decor, service, music, flavors, and style of cuisine forever cemented a sense of time and place and one that you would eventually want to emulate. So clearly she was an inspiration. Yeah, I mean, you know, I thank God my mother was such a, influence in my life, both in giving me my work ethic, attention to detail, uh, motivation, um, and also a lot of independence, kind of creating the sense of responsibility in me by, by expecting me to do things without being managed all the time. So, you know, that was, that was a really good thing that, uh, that my mother gave me. And she set me in front of a dishwasher, you know, at, at a very early age where I learned six disciplines that have been with me ever since. And that was, you know, how to be organized, how to be efficient, how to accept critical feedback, which I, you know, I mean, that is such an important thing and something I think that is difficult today for a lot of people to accept critical feedback. Critical feedback gives us an opportunity to really improve ourselves. We all like to be praised, but, you know, praise is only, you know, for something you, you've already done. You know, critical feedback is for something that you can improve on and do better tomorrow. And that think is really, really important. So critical feedback was a, was a big thing to learn. The rituals, you know, the idea of rituals, when to do things in specific times. Um, repetition was a big part of that, uh, those six disciplines. And then finally, teamwork. And those six disciplines have been with me since a young age. Of course, I wasn't able to identify them until I started to become a, a professional chef and, and start to think about what, how, why I do what I do. And I look back at that organization, efficiency, critical feedback, rituals, repetition, and teamwork. It's really interesting how you talk about those things from such an early age, whether it's baseball and being part of a team and these six rituals and how they impact your life moving yeah. forward. And dad was a Marine drill sergeant, I heard. And still amongst does many work. other things, yeah. yeah. He, he ultimately rose to uh, a captain level. Um, yeah, but he's, he, spent a, he spent time as a, as a cook, as a drill sergeant, yeah. you know, and then running a, a group of, uh, of Marines. Did that have an influence how you lead at all or not? Um, yes and no. I think that, you know, we are part, you know, our DNA is part of our parents. Yeah. So I think there, you know, my father became a Marine because, you know, his DNA led him down that path. And he, he liked that kind of, that kind of organization, that structure, you know, yeah. that ritualistic kind of approach to things and the respect that they all have for one another. Um, the camaraderie, you know, was part of that, was, you know, part of being a Marine. And, and that's something that I think, you know, I have it in, in myself. I, cherish those moments of camaraderie. I, I like the Buku's door, you know, beginning that, that foundation with Danielle and, and Jerome and, and Gavin was, you know, the camaraderie of that and, and starting these things, the camaraderie of a kitchen. I mean, all these things that we look at and we're part of, you know, the team. So I think that that has part of my DNA and has influenced me. And even though I wasn't raised by my father, seeing and understanding what he did, of course, was influential. Yeah. You've been cooking for... Over 40 years. Was there a moment you ever wanted to throw in the towel as a chef? Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's many moments that you want to throw in the towel as a young, as a young cook. And growing up in the profession and, and being, you know, challenged to a point where, you, where you, you don't think you can do it. And, you know, certainly back then, kitchens were run much differently 
they were, you know, kind of that um, militaristic point of view where, you know, you were told what to do, but weren't explained why you, you should do it, you know, and you just did it. And sometimes you were confused by what you were doing. <laughs> and the reactions that, that chefs had, you know, back then wasn't exactly with the reactions that we have today. Yeah, the emotions ran really high in, in kitchens. And I, I understand why, um, you know, I've, I've been able to figure that out, that, that, that part of our, our life and why we respond that way and being able to change that that kind of reaction. Was there a turning point for that? Because we, we, I sat with Chef Eric mm-hmm. Repair mm-hmm. and he talked about that yeah, because yeah. he said he was mean in the kitchen. Yeah, he would yeah. scream, you know, yeah. but there was a turning point there. Yeah, there's a turning point. You know, it's, it's called maturity. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, maturity doesn't come at any specific age. You know, it comes with, uh, with experience and wisdom. And, you know, you, you realize that, I, have, I always realized when I got emotional with somebody, that I would go home that night and feel really bad, right? And then I have to go in the next day and apologize for being so emotional. Uh, and, and I learned that that I wasn't really getting the results that I wanted by by expressing those kinds of emotions. So, you know, for me, it's getting somebody really close to me and, and just whispering in their ear that, you know, I'm really disappointed in what you've just done. Mm. And that really gets their attention because mm-hmm. the last thing they want to do is disappoint you. And so if you can get them close enough and they're really listening to what you're saying and you you just, you know, use a few words and, and then they, they kind of wake up and they look at you and go, okay, chef, I'll, you know, I won't do that again. Or I'll do my best to change. And, and, and it, often it works. And, you know, it's just a process. It's training, it's training, it's training, it's training, it's yeah. training. And people make mistakes and you have to allow people to make mistakes because we learn from our mistakes. It's that critical feedback, whether we're getting it ourselves from what we see that we're doing, the results of sauteing a piece of fish. I mean, we get critical feedback from what we're doing, not necessarily from everybody around us. So we have to be, we have to be open and aware uh, of everything that's going on so that we can receive that kind of information and then process it and, and make modifications to what we're doing to do better. Yeah. In this journey as being a chef, when did you realize, is there a time you realized you made it as a chef? I, <laughs> that's, that's hard to say. You know, we get a lot of, a lot of critical acclaim um, from, from people that we, that we don't really know. You know, it's hard to realize the value in, in, in getting something from somebody you don't know. And so we have to start to be able to use our judgment and, and expressing what we, what we feel we, I don't want to say what we deserve, but what we've worked hard for. But remember, all of the accolades or all of the, all of the, the rewards and all of the press or all the media or whatever we're talking about is for what you did yesterday. You know, yeah. it's like, what are we going to do today? And then what are we going to do tomorrow? I mean, it's scary to be reinforced, you know, for doing something yesterday and you get, a, you get an award tomorrow for that. Or, you know, you get criticized for something you did yesterday, you know, but, you know, you're doing something different today. So we always have to realize that, you know, the, the feedback that we receive from people we don't know, we have to be able to filter, you know, filter through that and understand, you know, who they are by virtue of their reputation, their legacies. Yeah, their history. You know, I really like to hear from people that I know, yeah, right? that they come to my restaurants over and over again, and and I've gotten to know them, and I and I can trust, I can trust what they're telling me. You know, if it's too, if they say it's too salty, I, you know, I, I know their level of experience with my food, and I know their level of experience with other foods, and I know them, and I know they're gonna, they're going to really be honest. So you know, then I take that in, into consideration. If it's too warm, I'm sorry. If it's too cold, I take that into consideration seriously. And those those individuals, you know, are are really relevant to 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 what we do in in our restaurants, whether it's, whether it's in the dining room or in the kitchen. Yeah. Remember, you know, we're we're um, you're talking to a chef, but 
you know, I have to remind everybody who's listening to this, the, the most important, well, not the most, but some of the most important people in our restaurant are our are, are service team. Mm-hmm. I mean, they can make or break what we do in the kitchen. So we, we, have, to, we have to be respectful to them on, on how they're functioning and making sure that we're teaching them you know, what we need to teach them so they can, they're in front of the guests and, and they are expressing what we want to express either through our food, you know, or, or, or through that service skill that they have. I have so many different directions I want to go right now. <laughs> Where do I start? Okay, so first and only American-born chef to hold multiple Michelin three-star ratings. So what do those mean to you? Um, well, you know, Michelin is, is you know, an historic um, guide that, you know, began by the Michelin Tire Company to make people drive. <laughs> I mean, that was, you know, that was the ulterior motive for that. And, that. and that's great. And, you know, it's become a very respected guide around the world now. Um, and certainly as I grew up in, in my profession and decided that France was the cuisine that I wanted to do and the, and the chefs in France were, the, were my role models, were my icons, as well as many others, of course, of my generation, uh, Michelin represented the highest level of uh, acclaim, the highest level of an award that you could receive, the highest recognition. Um, if you received a Michelin star, you know you you started to be recognized as a, as a chef that had you know had the capacity to prepare and serve food, you know, and uh, of, of a high quality. You know, two stars is the next level. Three stars was really unheard of, and chefs in France worked for decades uh, to get three stars. So when Michelin announced that they were going to come to the United States, at least me and I think some of my colleagues that I spoke to never re- thought that they would ever, you know, start out by giving three stars. You know, they'd, they'd never done it historically in, in France. And so we were, we felt very fortunate. And remember Jonathan Benno um, was the chef de cuisine at Per Se. Jonathan worked with us at, at French Laundry, you know, two tours um, um, early on in the in the in the mid nineties, and then coming back in the early two thousands, just to to refresh. I his, feel like there should be a Jonathan Benoit concert T shirt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you know, and Jonathan and I worked very very well together. And Jonathan, you know, along with the entire team at Per Se, you know, received that that three star award in two thousand six, and we were. We were ecstatic. I mean, we were we were just overwhelmed, and uh, it was a really beautiful moment for everybody to actually be, you know, the first American chefs because we were all part of that to receive three Michelin stars. And it's something that you have to remember. It's a it's a burden of responsibility, right? It, it, that you have to Michelin, you know, the most recognized guide in the world, the most respected, um, has the longest legacy, is the toughest to to you know to to receive those kinds of rewards. You you have to maintain that. I mean, yeah. for, for not just for yourself, but for them. You open right? you yeah. open again for service the next right. day, right? And you have to realize, okay, now I'm a Michelin three star restaurant, and everybody that comes through my restaurant doors, whether they're they're on our team or whether they're coming to dine, is going to expect a three star experience yeah. and a three star restaurant. And so, you know, every day you look at that and, um, and it's something that happens every year. You know, you're never guaranteed, you know, that you're going to have three Michelin stars the next year. Yeah. And so you always have to be thinking about that in a way that reinforces your work ethics and, you know, this idea of always, always progressing and evolving and making sure that you never take anything for granted. Yeah. You, you touched on how important the service team is. I know your business partner, Laura <laughs> Cunningham, your VP of branding and creative development. My question is about front of house versus sure. back of house. Yeah. Touching on that. Tell us about the dynamic or the coordination of the kitchen yeah. with front of house. Right. 
So it's interesting, you know, the words are very important to me. And so, um, you know, you just use two front of the house and back of the house. We just, we don't, we don't separate ourselves like that. Yeah. Um, we want to bring ourselves closer together. And what you're sitting in right now is a dining room. It's not a front of the house. And what we have, you know, what is considered back of the house is actually a kitchen, just like you have at home. You know, at home you have a dining room and you have a kitchen. It, it's more familiar. It's warmer. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's easier understood than front of the house, back of the house. It's like, you know, it's not, that just doesn't seem, uh, seem warm and fuzzy to me. So words are very, very important for us. And, and we, we often change the way we think about things because of the words that we use. But yes, Laura, Laura was, you know, so, so, I mean, I can't express how significant she, she was and is in the success of all of our restaurants and certainly in the early days of the French Laundry, where she defined and refined this casual, um, elegant um, service in a fine dining restaurant. And, you know, that's been adopted, you know, all around the country and possibly around the world is a sense of, of familiarity, uh, of the sense of conversation, personality, attitude, um, this warmth of embracing people you know, in many ways as they come into our restaurant and how to talk to people, how to share stories, you know, and it's not such a mechanical function as it was when I was growing up in fine dining restaurants, but it allowed for, for conversation. Um, it allowed for a sense of warmth and building relationships. And if you think about that, you know, that's what we do. We, we build relationships with, with our, with our guests and we want to build relationships with our guests. We want to hear from them. We want to talk to them. We want to have that, that familiarity that you have when you're home, you know, at home, around the table, right? They're, they're your friends, they're your loved ones. And, yeah. and that's the kind of sensibilities that she had when she brought that into the French Laundry, you know, in the early 90s. Yeah. You mentioned sense of, and mm. I know you have one of your favorite mantras, sense of urgency, Correct. which I thought was in the kitchen of French Laundry until I took a little tour of the kitchen uh -huh. here and I saw it above every clock. Yeah, below every clock. Yeah, below, yeah. <laughs> Word, yeah. the importance yeah. of words. <laughs> so explain that yeah, sense sure. of urgency, much, a, the know, meaning of it. It reminds me of when I was, um, and this was specific to the Polo restaurant at the Westbury Hotel, um, where I really learned about sense of urgency. Uh, I was the poissonier. Patrice Boily was the chef de cuisine who had just come over from, this was in the 80s, early 80s. Um, Patrice Boily was the chef de cuisine who came over from Moulin, uh, uh, Moulin de Moulin, who was chef de cuisine for Roger Verger. Daniel Boulud was in the kitchen. Uh, David Boulet was in the kitchen. Um, there were so many of us in the kitchen during that period of time. And I, w I was hired as the poissonier, and that was great, but I always wanted to be the saucier. You know, that was kind of like if you were the saucier, that was the highest peak of being a CDP. And in order to be, you know, I thought, I started to think about how am I going to be the saucier, or how am I going to prepare myself to be the saucier. So I would, I would be as efficient, as effective, as organized as I could, setting up my mise en place on the fish station so I had some time left over so I can go spend with the saucier and learn what he was doing so that when the chef... You know, when, when the rotation happened and the saucier moved on to some, something else, possibly sous chef or moved on to a different restaurant, I could raise my hand and said, I'm ready. And, and that's the sense of urgency I had to have every day so I can learn and prepare myself to do the job I wanted to do next. And so it's not, you know, we all, so many of us think that we're going to get the next job. We're going to be promoted because we've been here for a year or two years. Or we're really good at what we do. No, you have to prepare yourself for what you want to do next before you're able to do it. And, you know, it's a, that old age saying is, you know, who's, you know, if, if I'm going to hire a vice president, there's six people in the room, who am I going to hire? I'm going to hire the person that's already doing the job. And so that's what sense of urgency means. 
preparation is everything. Yeah, absolutely. How different are you as a person when you're in the kitchen versus when you're out of the kitchen? Well, I, you know, today I try, I think I'm, I'm pretty much the same. You know, I'm in a different place in the hierarchy of our restaurants, you know. So if you look at it, and I've always said, you know, I run a, I run a sports franchise, you know, and I've always, I've always thought that, again, you know, baseball being the love of, of, of my younger life and, and enjoying it today. You know, my father bringing the Marine Corps, the brigade system, the Scoffier, you know, who defined that for, for, the, culinary, for the culinary teams in the world, uh, you know, in the early 1900s and reorganized, you know, what cooking was and how cooking was, 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 was produced. We see ourselves differently. And so as a younger chef, you know, I was that utility player. Right. I was the poissonier at the polo. I was the, the saucier, you know, at the dunes clubs and doing these different things. You know, you're that utility player. And then one day you become so good that you become a franchise player. Right. And so a franchise player is somebody who, you know, as you know, is somebody that the team wants to brand and keep them with them. And so, you know, my franchise days were, you know, a lot of those days were at the French Laundry. But then I realized that, you know, as as you as you grow um, in your profession and as you age in your life, you have to be able to realize that you have to find the next franchise player. You know, Derek Jeter can't be Derek Jeter all of his life. He's there, you know, as a, as, as a, as a young star and he, he grows and matures and, you know, he's the captain of the team. And then, you know, someday he has to retire because he can't do what they, you know, what the younger guy that's coming up can do. And you have to realize that. You have to realize that there's a moment in your career that you have to be able to pass that torch. doesn't mean that you don't want to do what you've done all, you know, for most of your career. It just means that it's time. And so you, you hire another franchise player or you promote a franchise player as, as they evolve and progress through your restaurants. And that, this is dining room and kitchen as well as a franchise player in the kitchen. And looking at that as a sports franchise, you realize you continue to have to bring young talent in. And so hiring becomes really, really important. And hiring, again, you know, in my career, you know, you got hired because somebody told, somebody was talked about you or somebody said, go here and get a job or somebody needed you. They needed a poissonier and, and you were the first person at the back door. To Today, you know, hiring is a much different process. We have to make sure that we're hiring the right people and allowing them to come into our, our restaurants and see what, what it's like to work in a restaurant so they can make an analysis themselves and say, yes, I'm prepared to do this. Or they say, well, maybe, maybe I'm not ready yet. But once you hire a person, you're committed to that person 100%. It's not like 75%. Let's see what he can do. It's like, I'm, I'm 100% committed to you because I've hired you and I'm going to train you. And training doesn't go on for two weeks as it did, you know, in my early career. It goes on for a period of time. And I always, always say it's like, you know, those parents who have youngsters who they're teaching the swim, you know, they put floaties on their arms because they don't want them to drown. Right. And they don't say two weeks later, I'm gonna take the floaties off and you, you should have learned how to swim. And if you drown, that's your fault. You know, they keep those floaties on for three months after the, the child's learned how to swim. And that's kind of the training process that we have to go through in our restaurants and our dining rooms to make sure that that person understands completely, not only what to do, but how to teach what to do as well and how to, and how to be able to analyze what they're doing to make sure they're doing it correctly. And once you've hired somebody and you train the person, which goes on and on and on, then you mentor that person. You mentor that person through their career. You mentor that person sometimes through their life. And if you do though, if you hire the person correctly, if you train the person correctly, you mentor the person correctly, who, what happens to that person? That person should be better than you because if they're not better than you, then you haven't done a really good job. And this is kind of that, that, that mentality of you know, bringing in young talent, train, you know, hiring them and training them and mentoring them and, and allowing those, those talent to actually um, blossom and, and to represent themselves. And you have then you know, a, true, a true legacy team. And, and that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Do you almost train your 
young talent to train the younger talent? Well, that's what that, actually that's what happens. So I, you know, I don't get in, involved in in hiring those people because it's always uh, you know the Comeys who come in the back door. Comey is you know somebody who's just starting in a kitchen. It's the base of of what a kitchen is, and and they're doing you know menial tasks. They're you know they're peeling vegetables, they're putting in the way, whatever needs to get done, and they're working with their chef de parties, and so it's the chef de parties that start to recognize that talent, and then it starts to move through the kitchen or through the dining room, and it's it's a wonderful thing to see. And then all of a sudden, then they you become aware of that person, and you start to recognize that person's ability, that person's talent, that person's commitment, this dedication, the ability to make an impact, to, to to be influential. And you know, the chef de parties in our restaurant, you know, most of them could be chefs in other restaurants or sous chefs in other restaurants. And to watch them grow and prosper with within within your team is just a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. And so that's my job is to make sure that the team is functioning as a team with a, the, the leader, the chef de cuisine, you know, who who is allowing the, his team, the, his sous chefs, to to work with their teams, which are the chef de parties, to work with their teams, which are the commis, um, to help to cultivate the young talent. Okay, so I spoke with Andrew Zimmern mm-hmm. in season one of this podcast, and. He mentioned, I quote here, people may call you hardcore or intense, but he says he knows a different man. Mm, okay. <laughs> he basically says that everyone that came through your kitchen is better off for it, especially him. So I want to play this short portion okay. of my conversation with him and our listeners. Okay. Because it's an incredible story. So this is Andrew Zimmern talking about Chef Thomas Keller. One day he came in on a Sunday morning to do wine inventory with one of the managers at Raquel. And he opened the door. There I was on the floor. I had passed out. And there were three empty bottles of Chateau La Conseillante. And I remember the wine because in those days with lead foiling and all the rest of that on all those bottles, it had the most beautiful blue foiling to cap the cork. I loved that wine. Someone went for wine. I stuck a pack of matches in the light. I mean, you know, something stupid. Drank some wine, passed out. He found me, said, get out of here. But he was among several people. Steve Colt at Spartina in Los Angeles and Ken Friedman in New York, not April's partner. Different one all put in money in case I ever showed up alive somewhere. Because that was the time, at that point, I went homeless. And I mean, just bad things started to happen from there on in. I saw Thomas at seven years sober for the first time. I went out to Aspen and he was doing a demonstration. I was standing way in the back and he stopped the whole thing in the middle of it and just walked up and gave me a hug. And I started crying and he whispered to me, he said, I thought the next time I saw you, you'd be dead. Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's amazing what happens in, in your life. And there there's there's another story similar to to uh, Andrew's story of a, of a young man who worked with me here in New York at, at uh, Raphael and then at Raquel, who disappeared for, for 10 years and then re- re- reappeared and tapped me on the shoulder at a book signing. And uh, he'd come back to life. And now he's still, he, you know, I hired him and he's still, he's at French Laundry today. Really? Yeah. And the interesting thing about it is there was a, there was a, a, a watercolor. Um, this was when Gourmet Magazine had, uh, in their reviews, uh, did watercolors. Marvin Friedman, I think, was the artist. And there's a watercolor of me in the kitchen of Raquel with Philip uh, walking past me with a tray of, uh, of chickens. And, it's, and it was in my office since, since Raquel days. And uh, every day, you know, I would see Philip and then, you know, to have him tap me on the shoulder. 
you know, years, years after he disappeared and say, I'm back. It was pretty incredible. And Andrew's just the same thing. I mean, you know, people have, you know, their, their lives and, you know, their, the, the destiny of what they're positioned to do is really, is extraordinary. And, um, you know, God bless Andrew and, 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 and Philip as well for, for making it through those tough times and coming back and persevering and making an impact still. When you change the menu nearly every night for 25, you just celebrated, congratulations, <laughs> huge you. congratulations, 25 years of the French Laundry. How do you innovate? Well, innovation is, is, is a process. We never find something that's going to dramatically change anything because we change every day. The menu changes every day. So it's a constant evolution. And it's like watching your child grow up. You don't really realize, you know, the, 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 the progress they're making until 10 years later. And, oh, my God, you know, it's like he's 12 years old. And he's you know, almost six feet tall. <laughs> and that's kind of what, what our menus are like. Uh, we remember it's just food. I mean, I mean, let's let's get it down to what the basic is. It's food, and you know it reappears every year, or it's constant, right? The asparagus comes in the springtime. You know, the lamb's there all the time, uh, and and so our job is to make sure that we're working with our farmers, with our foragers, with our gardeners, with our fishermen to get the best possible food that we can get. And we do that by supporting them. We, we make partnerships. We support them for, for decades. There are people I've worked with for two or three decades uh, in supplying our restaurants. And that's a wonderful thing to understand the impact that we have and that our guests have. And I, I, you know, I, I talk to them, I talk to our guests about this when, whenever I can. You know, every dollar that you spend in the restaurant is in support of not just the team that you see here in the dining room, but in the kitchen, but also of literally hundreds and hundreds of those farmers, fishermen, foragers, and gardeners out there who go to work every day to to produce food for us. That's nutritious, and we have to respect that. And and you know that sometimes cost, comes with a cost. But the menu is a constant evolution of techniques. And remember, we're we're basically not bound by, but we're we're attached to France, and so there's a lot of what we do in, is is French tech. And part of that is because, you know, when we open the French Laundry, we have to realize where the French Laundry is. I mean, my, my affection and love for France is, is not unknown. My affection and love for classic cuisine is not unknown. Um, I'm an American chef, so we look at things sometimes differently, but we still embrace the idea of classic French flavor profiles because we are in Napa Valley. And people come to Napa Valley to not just eat, but to drink the wine. So we have to be respectful of, of where we are and why we have our guest space that we have is because they want to come enjoy this wonderful food with the wonderful wine that we produce. And that's something that's very, very important is to have a total experience. You know, a chef who just thinks he's going to prepare food for his guests without consideration for who his guest is or what his guest wants to experience is not really a mature chef. We have to realize that we want to make sure our guests have a complete experience around around their their meal and that complete experience begins with the people that they bring to the dinner you know the most important decision you can make is who you're going to come to dinner with you know and that really kind of sets the stage for the kind of experience that you're going to have you know certainly the staff the food you know comes like third or fourth you know the the wine experience that whole thing is is all wrapped up in in, in that experience and that's just about the food so I'm not sure I've answered your question, but our menu changes every day yes. at the French Laundry and, and at Per Se. <laughs> and it's not the total menu that changes. There are things that are stagnant, like the Oyster and Pearl or the Coffee and Donuts. It's like the Rolling Stones. If they don't play Satisfaction, you know, you're kind of upset, right? If, if, if you come to the French Laundry, you've been thinking about coming to the French Laundry Per Se for four or five years and Oyster and Pearl's not on the menu, you're like, well, that's what I've been reading about for the past 10 years. And so, you know, those things are kind of stagnant. But in between that, it's a very garden 
uh, product-driven menu. How do you do with the 10 years from now or 25 years from now question? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Of course, you know, you get to a point in your life where you start to think about that. And so you mentioned that we just celebrated our 25th anniversary at the French Laundry. And I started to think about that, you know, reflect back on 25 years and the French Laundry and the legacy of the French Laundry and where the French Laundry will be in 10 or 15 or 25 years. And I realized that, you know, I've been a, a little selfish in that, a little self-centered in that because the French Laundry is 25 years old with Thomas Keller, right? But it's not about Thomas Keller. It's about the French Laundry. And the French Laundry is actually 42 years old. So if we want to really celebrate the legacy of the French Laundry, we have to continue to celebrate Don and Sally Schmidt, you know, who opened the French Laundry in 1977, and celebrate the idea of this restaurant that's on the corner of Washington and Creek Street. And if I really wanted to, to, to be a legacy restaurant and continue and evolving beyond me, then it's, it's about the restaurant, not about Thomas Keller. So we're, we're, we're going to change our, our anniversary date to February 7th, uh, 1977. So February 7th will be Is that on just an excuse for another anniversary party? Or? Um, well, it gets me, to the, <laughs> gets me to the 50th faster. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a number of different reasons there. But, you know, it's, uh, it, it is true. The restaurant is 42 years old and we want to be able to celebrate that and the legacy of Don and Sally Schmidt, not just Thomas Keller. Is it true that Jonathan Waxman like had a, an impact or gave you a lead on that space? He did. He did. Jonathan was building um, Table 29, um, which is just, just north of the city of Napa. And I stopped in to see him on a trip that I was going to. And he knew that I was out of work and looking for something to do. And he said, oh, there's this restaurant in, in Yonville called the French Laundry. And, I, and Don and Sally Smith, I think, want to sell it. So maybe you should stop and see them. So that was, you know, the, 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 the original um, motivation to go see Don and Sally Schmidt. Okay, we're nearing the end here. I just, I want to touch on a big part of this podcast is social impact sure. and giving back and how chefs do so and they all do in a different way. Mm-hmm. And yours, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, relates a lot to mentoring and giving back and grooming that next generation. So I know that championing of the next generation is extremely important to you. Why is it or what made you come to this conclusion? Well, you know, because I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. And I, you know, I look back on, on my career and what influenced me and who mentored me. And, and it's, it's those, those first, of, first of all, you know, the great chefs of France. And, and that's the name of a book, <laughs> by the way, um, that so many of my generation, you know, claim was a big part of the inspiration or the influence of why we became chefs. It wasn't necessarily a cookbook. It was a storybook about these great chefs in France uh, and their and, and their life. And it was just, it was such a wonderful life to embrace uh, being a chef. And I think that we all, a lot, a lot of us became chefs because of that book. And those chefs in France who were so influential and so inspirational. Uh, and then everybody who taught me from Roland Hennon, you know, embracing me as, as a young cook and, and helping me along the way, making me realize why cooks cook. We cook to nurture people. Regardless of the level of cooking that you're doing, we're nurturing people all day long. And we're nurturing ourselves, we're nurturing our teams, we're nurturing our guests. Um, we're nurturing our, our partners who are our producers of food. We're, we, we continue, and that's a really important uh, 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 bedrock of, of, of our profession is this idea of nurturing. And, and if you're of true nurture, you can really embrace this. And then, so those chefs who taught me, the Patrice Boilies, uh, um, the, uh, the Roland Hennens, uh, the, the Pierre Latrubaron, so all the, the, they were the, the, the men and women who taught me what to do and how to do it. And it's just a wonderful thing. My mother, 
<laughs> I mean, you know, just going back there. And and so we have to we have to be able to respect where we came from and always remember where we came from. Jean-Louis Paladin, I mean, just an extraordinary chef. And be able to pass that on and make sure that the next generations are, are respectful of those who taught those who taught them. And so there's this long, this long expression of commitment, of dedication, of nurturing that we all embrace. And I always, I've always liked the idea that I could go back 100 years in time and walk into a kitchen and, and, and be able to function in that kitchen, be able to, to, to be impactful in that kitchen. How do you ensure that the Jonathan Benno's or the Grand Atkinses, you know, mm-hmm. Hollingsworth, all these yeah. guys, you know, yeah. guys that came through your kitchen, all these chefs, cooks, whomever that came right. through your kitchen, how do you ensure that, I guess they learn this sense from being in your kitchen and ideally or hopefully pass that on in their kitchen? That's all you can do is you can exemplify what you want them to do and hopefully they see that and they exemplify that to the next generation. And, you know, Grant said to me several years ago, there's somebody, there's somebody today in my kitchen at Alinea that's going to blow me out of the water, right? And this was Grant, at, you know, at the, at the height of his, you know, of his career when he was getting the most recognition that you know, everybody was focusing on Alinea. It's still a great restaurant, of course, but, you know, we all have those moments yeah. of peaking in the, in the terms of the the, the, the expression of recognition that we're receiving. And, you know, it's nice to hear somebody who, um, you know, has a sense of modesty and understanding that, you know, what we're doing today is important, but the most important thing about what we're doing today is how we're giving that to those who are going to do it tomorrow. Yeah. I was going to say in the sense of giving back and mentoring, is there something that makes you the most proud well, there are many things that make me proud. You mentioned two two young chefs, you know, that I'm constantly proud of. And this is, this is you know, kind of the example. So when I was, you know, a young cook, Jean-Louis Paladin became, you know, somebody who was very important to me in the early 70s. And I would go to his restaurant. I would hope one day to meet him. And then I met him. You know, I never really worked for him. But, you know, I, he, he, as I moved, progressed in my career, he was still there to where we became, you know, somewhat colleagues in a way. And then we became friends. And, you know, I look at Timothy or, 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 or Grant or Jonathan Benno or Eric Zebold, you know, or, or any of the young chefs that have come through our restaurants. And it was like that. They wanted to work for me. They came to work for me. We, we became colleagues and we became friends. And that's such a wonderful thing when you think about what we do, you know, and the ability and the opportunities that we have to, to build these relationships with, with generations of people. Uh, and, you know, then, you know, look at Gavin Kaysen, who was with Danielle and Danielle's another person who exemplifies this idea of, of generational uh, mentoring and it's a beautiful thing I mean Eric you know you, you mentioned Eric Repair I mean there's so many chefs of my generation that have mentored so many others that are that are out there today and and we have to recognize that we do we do stand on the shoulders of those who came before us and and it's important to to realize the history and respect the history and embrace the history of of what we do yeah you know, cooking yeah excellent all right I want to Lighten it up a little bit. Okay. Can I do a quick speed round uh, sure. with you? And then yeah. we'll do a closing question. What did you have for dinner last night? Yeah, I had, um, we had chicken tacos with uh, rice and beans and some uh, tomato salsa and guacamole that we had for family meal at, um, at Per Se. So I ate around 5.30. Yeah. And it was, they, they usually eat at a quarter to five. And so my, I went back to the kitchen after I was doing what I was doing. And there was my, my plate, my plastic plate covered with, with aluminum foil. It says Chef Keller on top and my <laughs> rolled up, you know, utensils on the side and then a deli of, uh, 
of uh, salad with salad dressing on it, and and I think we had peach cobbler yeah. <laughs> for do you, dessert. Do you stand so. in the kitchen and eat that, or yeah. you take? No, I stand in the kitchen yeah. and eat that. I, the last chef I asked, they said uh, panzanella salad at one yeah. thirty in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> I try to avoid eating it late at night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> name a smell in the kitchen that you love. Uh, roasting. Yeah, roasting chicken. I mean, that's, you know, roasting. I mean, anything that's roasting like that. So roasting chicken first comes to mind. You think about duck, you think about lamb, you think about beef. I mean, that's just the, that aroma, not just not just the aroma, but the way, it made, the way it makes the kitchen feel. And then if you listen to it, you know, the noise, that, the sounds that it makes, it's just, it's just a wonderful, heartwarming kind of um, expression of, of cooking. Um, so that's roasting. How about a smell in the kitchen that you hate? Yeah, the smell in the kitchen I hate is cayenne pepper on a flat top, on a graduating <laughs> flat top. <laughs> Patrick's boy Lee used to come in the kitchen at the polo, and uh, in the busiest time, he would come in and put a tablespoon of cayenne pepper right in front of you on your, on oh, your flat top. Oh. And uh, if any of you have done that, it becomes um, almost caustic. You, you're choking, you can't breathe, and then he's saying, pick up, pick up, pick up. And you're trying. <laughs> That's old so that's school. A, yeah. that's a, that was those moments back then that uh, we like to not remember, but that's that's a, that's a, a smell that I I, I I avoid in all cases. Yeah. yeah. What pisses you off in the kitchen? I, you know, it's 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 hard to say. I think that we try to we try to to maintain you know our composure in our kitchens today because they are so you know they are so visible mm-hmm. you know, in, in in so many different ways, not only to our staff but to our guests that are coming in there. I, I think what upsets me maybe the most is our um, yeah. It's hard to say. Um, I try not. I guess I try not to get pissed off too much. <laughs> it would have to be just you know somebody who's unorganized or, or or not working in a in a clean in a clean way. And what makes you happy in the kitchen? Most everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it's it's you know, a kitchen's a warm place. It should always be a warm place. It's a place of nurturing. It's a place where we're preparing food. It's a place where we're expressing, you know, the 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 quality of our ingredients that that so many people have worked so hard to bring to us. And you know, we don't want to we don't want to waste those opportunities. Yeah, excellent. So closing here, if you could sit in front of every cook or mm-hmm. chef and give them a piece of advice, yep. what would you give, what would you tell them? Well, two words, and I've used these words already. One, one is patient, you know, be patient with your career. You know, don't try to rush through it. Um, you'll, you know, you, the quality of what you do is going to be, is going to be dependent on what you learn today and what you learn today takes time. And so don't, don't rush through that. And the other reason you want to rush through it is because, you know, the, 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 some of the most glorious moments of your life are going to be standing in front of a stove cooking, you know, as a chef de partie, you know, or, or in the back working with, with the Komiki team. I mean, don't try to, don't try to get to be a sous chef or, 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 or a chef de cuisine soon. I mean, take your time. It's really, you know, you're playing baseball, you know, enjoy, enjoy being on the field as long, as long as you can. Because once you, once you leave that, that function, point in your career where you're actually cooking on the, on the line and you become a sous chef, then you're managing other people. And then when you become a chef de cuisine, you're managing other people. We, we become cooks because we want to cook. We want to, we want to take that saute pan. We want to heat it up. We want to saute that piece of fish. We want to put that grill and heat that grill up and, and, and grill that steak. We want to do all those things because that's what we want to do. And as you, as you rise up the ladder, you get further and further away from that. So I think being patient is important. And then the other word I use is persistent. Don't let anybody tell you you can't do something. I mean, I sit here today as an example uh, of, of just that, you know, um, 
uh, as, as a young boy, not really having, you know, a focus on a career, you know, falling into cooking because my mother ran restaurants, understanding the six disciplines of what that meant in my life and how I could build my career, career around that. And then, and then meeting people um, who were so influential and understanding the need for the, the respect for those who came before us and learning from them uh, and embracing this idea of camaraderie um, and this idea of team teamwork, expressing this relationship with our with our partners. You know, it's, it's, it's an important thing. When I say partners, I'm talking about our suppliers, remember. It's important. And, and, and there's the persistence of, you know, wanting to, to reach those goals and then reaching those goals and then setting new goals for yourself and, 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 and still realizing your mistakes. You know, we still make mistakes, you know, no matter how, how good you are, how good you think you are, how good other people think you are, you know, mistakes are part of life and they'll continuously happen. Yeah. Excellent. So you've said you needed to prepare yourself to let go, which is difficult. Mm. Have you figured out what that looks like yet? Well, I think, you know, it's, it, there's this little kind of motivation that I have and, and you know, I, I've, I've let go quite a bit throughout my career. And, you know, the first part of that was when we opened Per Se here in New York in 2004, you know, and preparing for this opening of this great restaurant, coming back to New York City, you know, after being gone for, uh, for quite some time. And we opened Per Se in 2004. And uh, at that time, after we opened Per Se, I went back to the French Laundry and, and there was somebody else standing in my spot. <laughs> you know, that was, you know, yeah. that was Corey Lee. And it's like, okay, well, what do I do now? Because I've got Jonathan Benno at Per Se, Corey Lee at the French Laundry. Gosh, Corey Lee, I forgot yeah, about So it's like, you know, I don't, I don't have my spot anymore. You know, I am no longer the chef de cuisine of, of, of French Laundry. And I'm certainly not the chef de cuisine of, per se because Jonathan is. So what do I do? And so these are, you know, these are moments where without realizing the progression of my career have, 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 have happened. And, and the realization of that, of that happening has continued to push me forward and motivate me to do other things and, and open up new doors for me and, and new opportunities. And now I just have to embrace those new opportunities or use better judgment on the opportunities that I do embrace so that I can, I can focus on what is most meaningful for me, for me. And, you know, right now what's mo most meaningful for me is, is spending time in my kitchens with, with my team at the French Laundry and at, and at, and at Per Se because I find the most joy watching them do what they do um, and, and being proud of that and those who are doing it, both in the kitchen and the dining room. Well, it's an honor to sit with you. I appreciate you taking the time. Sincerely, thank you very much. You're welcome. I appreciate you having me on. Quote, when I asked why championing the next generation of cooks is important to him, Chef Thomas Keller says, I stand on the shoulders of those who came before me. I look back on my career on what influenced me and who mentored me. What we're doing today is important, but the most important thing about what we're doing today is how we're giving that to those who are going to do it tomorrow. Thank you again, sincerely, to Chef Thomas Keller. Find more on him at thomaskeller.com. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at OnCappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate's on Twitter at BT Plate Podcast and Facebook. This episode is produced by myself along with Ian Cohen, Joel Eaton, and Sean Petrosian. A thank you to Tom Osborne. Our music has been composed by Goldford. Find him at iGoldford. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us next week for Just the Plate when Chef Thomas Keller discusses his salmon cornets. 
Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.